Hello, and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. I am Percy here today with Nick. Hello, hello. And Todd. What's up, nerds? And Chris. Hello, hello. This week we're here to talk about spells, rituals, and techniques in Arc A Doom RPG by Momatoes, and specifically about how this game blurs real life and its fiction. To start, we wanted to do a little overview of the relevant game mechanics just to refresh your memory. So in the handbook, she talks about performing spells and techniques, which are things that you can select as part of your sort of quote-unquote inventory at the beginning in character creation. She says, quote, spells and techniques shape a hero's life, forcing them to perform strange rituals, attempting to grasp infinitely fickle and fragile fragments of unreality and pure will, which is a very highfalutin way of saying, like, they're very limited. Uh, You have a very sort of finite number of instances that you can use them, and they're ways of sort of doing magic or accessing great power. It's also super alliterative, which I had not appreciated until you read it aloud. So good I, on I too was that. unprepared for how alliterative it was going to be until I was in the thick of it. Um, <laughs> the other sort of centerpiece of what we wanted to talk about today is that, quote, spells and techniques can be replenished even if you have spent every instance. All instances are restored at the end of a long rest if a related ritual is performed by then. Failure to do so simply means it does not refresh. Of note is that there is an alternate rule that you can use that she puts into the book that says that you can, uh, it basically excises rituals from the game and you essentially, similar to like Dungeons and Dragons and similar games, you take a long rest and your spells and techniques are refreshed and you can use them again. The descriptions of the spells and techniques also include the ritual, which must be completed by the hero by default. So like in the fiction, however, there are ones that you have to do as a player, uh, which are labeled. And she also creates room for you or the guide to sort of alter or replace them with things that feel more appropriate to your party. And just to clarify, because we kind of blew through the original reading of it, essentially the spells and techniques refreshing relating to if a ritual is performed, it sort of allows the ritual, by performing the ritual, you will then get a refresh at the end of the long rest, right? Just to... First, perform the ritual and then have a long rest, and that will right, recharge. Right, right. Yes. Uh, but if you take a long rest and you don't do the ritual, you don't get your spells or your spell or right, technique. Because you haven't done the ritual to get it back. Yeah. And the other sort of TLDR of what we're getting at here is that there are a mix of rituals that are performed by your character and by you as the player. And we also will issue a, a slight correction to our explainer episode. Uh, the We claimed that the rituals are like ambiguous as to whether it's the hero or the player that does them, but they are actually, in fact, very clearly labeled in parentheses at the end of the entry if it's like as a player. I still think if you watch a man die in real life, <laughs> you should get a refresh. I agree. <laughs> I, I'm I'm there with you on that. Um, and yeah, I was I was going to say I think it's it's clearly labeled when you go through them systematically in that like like she says explicitly uh (laughs) if if they are unlabeled they are done by the character not the player but but you could do an alternate ruling where you could do any of them in real life yes absolutely (laughs) almost all of them not all but almost all can be performed in real life uh questionable legality i look forward to consuming a door soon yeah, we do. We do not uh, here at Dungeons and Drama Nerds. We do not endorse or recommend performing these rituals in real life. Um, yeah. Questionable legality, questionable safety, but technically performable. 
Yeah, we assume no liability for what happens to you if you choose to do these rituals in real life. We also assume no liability if consuming a door doesn't give you magic powers. <laughs> if you've done that and you're disappointed, uh, refer all complaints to Momatos. To get us a little bit back on track, the other thing to note about spells and techniques is that each one also has an enhanced version that usually involves making a skill check and sacrificing a certain amount of guts, depending on how powerful the original spell or technique is and how powerful the enhancement is. So sort of a strategic risk-reward situation that you might encounter if you want to do the enhanced version. I don't believe enhancing it when you use it affects the ritual in any meaningful way. Nope. Thank you. Uh, and then also, uh, you may have already, if you've been listening to the whole run of this, uh, these commentaries, you may already know about this, but the relationship between real-time and in-game time in ARC is uh, very closely tied uh, many mechanics are related to real world time like the doom clock itself um, rests and how frequently you can try to learn new spells techniques or create new ones it's not directly correlated to real time but it's real real close and so and we've had a whole episode about that but that's important to remember yeah so let's talk about some of these spells and techniques uh, in detail and some of our favorite ones there's about 15 pages uh, of them, so there's a lot to choose from. I think we only saw like four or five in the game that we played. I, mm-hmm. I'm ballparking that, but I think we only see like four or five on screen, as it were. But uh, just picking out some favorites from the book, not necessarily ones from the game, I will start by calling out a particular spell I like titled Manic Hands, which I like because I'm a weirdo and so is this spell. Uh, Four arms and hands appear out of nowhere connected to your face. Uh, (laughs) This is a very uh, kind of distressing, uh, I I don't even know what, either. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, it's pretty uh, good. To, to, to say what I have said in the Zoom chat, I had not read the part where they come out of your face. I skimmed right over it. That, that's the best part of it. That's the yeah. best part of the spell. Yeah. I was very... picturing like a way of the astral self monk where you get like some fun arms coming out of like your torso or like your stomach. Oh, no. No. Right no, out, no. Of, your out of your face. Your face sprouts four shoulders. Uh-uh. Which... Which is why it's important to note the rest of the the ritual text, which says you still see, speak, and breathe normally, (laughs) (laughs) in case that ever uh, came up. Uh, What this does mechanically is is very simple. It lasts for 10 rounds, uh, excuse me, it lasts for 10 real-time minutes or three turns in combat. Uh, And what it does is just let you make two skill checks every turn in combat, or if you are not in conflict, uh, it gives you a plus one to the target number of your skill checks, which makes them easier to do if they benefit from extra hands, for example, climbing. You also get a bonus to impose skill checks, uh, but you take a penalty to charisma skill checks because you have four hands coming Wonder out of Wonder why. Yes. You can, I should know, enhance this to get six arms. Um <laughs> coming out of your face allowing you to do uh three checks per turn in combat there's definitely a pokemon that is this i think i'm sure there is um, sure there is and i 
I will say I like it because it's weird and kooky and very magic. It puts me in mind. I don't think this is an actual thing, but just probably it's just the the many arms I visualize. But it does put me in mind of sort of like Hindu deities or other yeah. kind of or uh, biblical angels or other like many limbed uh, divine beings. Yeah. P- Percy has suggested Hoopa in the chat. Is is that the Pokemon? Oh, okay. I was making a, a face before, but Hoopa does have that sort of many armed uh, in its unbound form. And it's yeah, unbound and it, they're kind of flitting form. all around its like whole body, though. It's not really. Oh, God. Wow. Pokemon's it's not changed quite so the much face since I was a kid. Again. Oh, yeah. Look at. Oh, I see that. Yeah. Also, sure. they have bound and unbound forms now. That is. Are Pokemon actual demons? Um, you know what? We're uh, not going to get into that too deep. Pokemon Pokemon are too confusing for me to understand anymore. Yeah. It's that's, too much. I, I'm an old man, and that is true of me. Same. Um, Same. Yes, to get back to our topic of conversation. Uh, I was going to say, I, I love it because it's weird uh, and magic and very effective. It also has a great ritual uh, because there's some interesting ambiguity in the ritual as well. The ritual to recharge manic hands just says, hack off all of someone else's limbs. This is what I specifically had in mind when I said we do not assume any liability for if you choose to do this (laughs) in your real life. (laughs) There's, listen, there's a lot of ambiguity here around A, like what a limb is, uh, B, whether the person has to be living or dead. (laughs) I see all of you making mm. faces as to ambiguity around what a limb is, and yeah. I think, I I think that's uh, I don't know. I feel I can like see ambiguity around who qualifies as someone. Like that is too. It, is it any kind of sapient creature? Yeah. Are you finding a daddy long legs? Like yeah. what are you doing? Is it a sapient daddy mm. long legs? Is it? Do they have to be sapient? Anyway, questions about personhood. Uh, questions about <laughs> violence. Uh, questions about life and meaning in general all come out of this extremely simple ritual, um, which is, I will also say, it, it's one of the interesting ones because this is, I think, only a level two spell uh, or, or whatever she calls it. Um, it's only got two little uh, dagger symbols, mm-hmm. which is not, like, inordinately powerful, but I wonder if this ritual is a little cap on, like, you don't get to do this all the time. You don't get to do this every single day. Well, I uh, suppose it also depends very much on the style with which you are playing this game, right? Yeah. Like, the world could be hyper-violent, and, you know, yeah. like, that is, you know, you could be, like, if we're doing, dark, like, what is it, Dark Star? Is that what, that, what those, like, that, like, fantasy, like, high fantasy sword and sorcery sort oh, of, dark like, Conan and the... Dark Sun, yeah, like Conan the mm. Conan the Barbarian sort of like levels of violence. Like, yeah. there are people who game that way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like in a game with like limited amounts of like where your time is so limited yeah. as the guide, I would absolutely limit the opportunities for somebody to track per- a person down and hack off all of their. Li- you know what I yeah. mean? Like, well, yeah, and it's also I, I mean, gatekept. You also have to take a long rest, which requires like. A fair amount of time mm-hmm. i do think it would be interesting uh in a game like nobody took this skill um in our uh game but in the style of game that we had it would be a very big character choice yeah. for gormla to hack off all of someone's limbs 
You know, it would Gorm, be. Gorm would be the person who would. <laughs> yes, this is true. Um, yes, no, no question. <laughs> and more so, I'm thinking about it in like a, like I don't think this is a game that encourages like murder hobo behavior, necessarily. No. Not usually, mm-hmm. not generally. So I feel like, I, but I think that's that's ultimately what we're saying, right? It's like this is a big swing, and it's a big choice. And it sure is useful, but what does it say about the person that you're playing? Yeah. And I think that's ultimately what makes it so good. Is that like there's, this is a dark, dark cost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For something as useful as this, which tells us a lot about the way in which this game treats power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I had a couple small things that I wanted to talk about. I think my favorite um, spell that we didn't get a chance to see uh is called burn the past Mm -hmm. you target a creature you can see and their memory of the past in story hour is erased uh with an enhanced version it can be the last three in story hours and the ritual to like re-instance this for yourself is to burn a memento or letter from someone you dearly miss i know in this instance that's talking about uh an in character choice that you're making which like kind of has some costs and kind of doesn't have some costs because like you know my arc character that we're playing for a short amount of time has a a memento from their mom that they haven't seen in a long time that i just made up like sure but i like the idea of having to burn a personal memento for me player yeah yeah as the player like i think that has such a higher cost and feels very meaningful as a choice to choose to do and like maybe you don't use that spell or maybe you choose not to reinstance that for yourself mm-hmm. but i think that that like sets up really interesting player choice and then i wanted to talk about two just real quickly rituals that we did see that i just thought were fun and so by this point in the campaign you will have heard um the use of trinket uh, wherein Dex crafts uh, a little song for us as a player, which I thought was adorable and hilarious when confronting mm. Kuspan and throws some glitter uh, that smells like lemon. I thought that was great. Uh, and then Giovanni used flow motion, and the ritual to reignite that was to not move for one actual real-time minute as a player which was also hilarious to me to see Giovanni just kind of try to be stock still for a whole particularly minute. as a rock person. Yeah. <laughs> also in an audio medium, which I also appreciate, you know, mm-hmm, I'm sure mm-hmm. everyone at home. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I would like to um, <clears throat> also talk about uh, a spell that I found really interesting, which is secret door. The text reads the next door you encounter opens to a random place you've never seen or been reverting back to normal once shut the enhanced version of this the portal opens to where to a location where an omen is taking place um Mm. and if all omens are resolved it opens to where the doom is happening Mm -hmm. very very powerful i think this is a three on Mm. the scale of up up to four uh, in the book very powerful very chaotic uh bit of bit of magic for a player to wield and for a and for a game master to manage um 
which I think is particularly fun. There's no, there's no like targeting this, which I think is very good. Like the targeting is all on, you know, you're leaving it up to the gods, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So that is a very, it's a lot of pressure <laughs> if you're running the game. Mm-hmm. It's just to like improvise that in the moment, but it's also, and make it mean something, but it's also, especially as it pertains to enhancing it, right? The ritual for this is really a mind-bending thing, though, and it is consume a door. <laughs> That's all. That's the whole thing. Consume a door. The infamous consume a door. Now, it cons- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it was a it was a vacuum in the fifties. Um, I at first, I it's good that we have the distinction that like it's not a a player can't do this. Right, but what does that mean? And it's similar to, I, I think this is one of those things where Nick was talking about the ambiguity of what is a limb, and to me, there is no ambiguity there. <laughs> but I understand through this. But what? It, but what? But what can I do? Right? It's that like <laughs> player. It's that player thing of like, yeah, but okay. But like, let's talk about what. Yeah, let's like, talk can about I? What this can means. I find a dollhouse? Yeah. How can I how can I game this? How can I game this so that I don't spend however much time like chewing wood pulp? <laughs> <laughs> if I will say if a player of mine found a dollhouse or better yet a gingerbread house sure. as their like ritual uh source for this, I would absolutely allow that. I think that's great lateral thinking. It's really it's really fun. But then of course, like where it's a door to where, you know what I mean? Like it's gotta be a portal to something. There's a lot of, you know, so there's a lot of fun sort of like negotiation that would go on here. That well, and like, is it the door? Is it the door frame? Like, does a door? What makes it a door? What is it? What constitutes? Yeah, a door? is a panel of wood a door? Yeah. yeah. Once you've once you've taken it off the door frame to consume it, is it just a board? Was it a door? Is that part of it? Is it like must it have been a board? Must it have been a door? I mean, I think this is the kind of stuff that sort of like would be a great way for time, real time to pass in this game and for players to get derailed uh, having these sorts of conversations instead of just doing it. You know what I mean? Just out of curiosity, if your character had to consume a door right now, what is the method each of you would take? Am I my character? Is this the Uh, Neo-Futurists? Any character. (laughs) Well, if I were a rock person, then it wouldn't be so hard. If I were were Lemon Sprinkle, I would find a gingerbread house. Yeah, yeah. I if I I mean if I were Twily, I would probably just be like, all right, I have to tough this out and <laughs> just take yeah. a take a full size physical wooden door and attempt to eat it. I would go find a doggy door somewhere, and then I would boil it. You know, my thought was also turn it into a stock for soup somehow. Mm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. It seems that very impractical to boil <laughs> down a door, but that's where my brain. A very is. large oh. pot. Really big one, pot. One assumes I don't have a human digestive tract. You know what I Actually, mean? Actually, like... you know what? If I'm speaking for myself as a person, I would be derailed by the philosophical conversation of what exactly constitutes a door and is an opening mm-hmm. enough. Uh, and then, like, in the background of the shot, you would see, like, a kaiju, like, stomping towards the city <laughs> behind where I'm having this argument with someone. No, which is to say nothing of the philosophical con- conversation around the consumption. Mm. What, how how yeah. could one consume? You know what I mean? If I just, 
if I just lit a door on fire, it would be consumed in flames. But did you mm, consume you know? it? What if I aesthetically admire the door on Instagram? <laughs> have I consumed it? <laughs> Has the door been turned into content which I've consumed? I was going to say from the opposite end as a GM, if my player did want to recharge this ritual and uh, wanted to use a gingerbread house door, I would absolutely allow it. However, the next time they uh, cast it, I would have them go through the door and become ginger people. Very I feel like that's only they fair. Would, they would go to Candyland. Yes, exactly. Yes, all of a sudden we're in Candyland. I feel that's like that's actually only fair. that's very cool, and it would be a fun like Easter egg to hold on to, and then have them remember like, <laughs> oh shit, I did. <laughs> Whoops. Oh, me- remember remember how I tried to be a smartass? Well, <laughs> no mechanical impact on anything. <laughs> Hoisted by my own petard. I feel I chose the least fun of our assembled spells and techniques. That tracks. Um, I'm the least fun (laughs) of the four of us. The technique that I chose is called redo. Uh, You redo the last roll regardless of who made it. It's a three dagger sort of complexity. It's a very powerful effect. Um, The enhanced version is that you can increase or decrease the target number or the threshold number by one as well. So you can make the roll easier or harder. The ritual for this is to intentionally fail a crucial skill check. And the reason that I ended up choosing this one when I was looking through them is that it prompted a particular sort of observation that I have about a lot of these rituals. Like some of them, I don't remember the associated spell or technique for it, but one of them is like jump over a newborn, which I think is like thematically relevant. But like, um, I love that one. Another one I think is a good one to blur the line on character or player. (laughs) Don't jump over babies. You, it's too risky. But I feel like they're small. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Percy's like, I can make that jump. I I know I can. Easy jump. I'm pretty clumsy, but like I could do it. (laughs) Um, The observation that I came to is that like what I think is really interesting about the way a lot of these are written is that um, many of these rituals involve sort of undergoing whatever the effect you impose upon someone else is yourself before you can do it again, uh, often in a kind of more intense way. And I'm really interested in that design choice. Um, sometimes it's also the reverse. I like the ritual for flow motion, which is like, you're really good at moving and then you have to be still. You have to experience the sort of reverse of that. Um, some examples that I've pulled are the ritual for compel, which uh, compels the target creature to follow an effect from a rollable list for a certain number of real-time minutes or turns in conflict. Um, the ritual for compel is for 30 real-time minutes, you always agree when asked. So you are in turn compelled. Mm-hmm. And this all isn't always in like a like an eye for an eye sort of way. It's not in the way that like... Um, like in the police academy or when you join the marines they make you like be tear gassed and like have pepper spray so that you know what it's like before you do it to other people which is like grim and awful um sometimes it's and i just wasn't expecting that to be your (laughs) go-to example of like how these rituals work or don't work um i what can we say what, what can i say um it's not always in that sort of like eye for an eye sort of way um but often you see this pattern of it being sort of the inverse or it being sort of a you have to like experience the opposite um the ritual for little escapologist which is a spell it essentially turns you invisible and you don't create any sound or odor for a certain amount of time um is that you have to introduce yourself to 10 strangers which i think is a really fun sort of flip 
of like becoming completely sort of unperceivable um so yeah uh, i was I don't just know. about to say gorm right like, <laughs> gorm does not wish to be perceived right and, yeah, and like it, this it, is i am imperceptible to i i willingly am perceived in real life yeah mm-hmm. and if we're like thinking about the way that taking certain spells or techniques like um like manic hands is a really strong sort of character choice it's interesting that some of these rituals can sort of push your character out of their comfort zone in that way um i think that's a cool design choice yeah question mm-hmm. stupid question but uh question do you think those text messages I get that just say hello there from unknown numbers are people from, are yes. trying to recharge yeah, their little yeah. escapologist ritual? Yes. Okay. I'll start being friendlier to them. So to get to what we're here to talk about today, like what does this mean for our experience of gameplay? That some of the rituals are in the fiction and some are things that the players themselves have to perform. Uh, and also, like, why this instead of a mana cost, or just recharging after a long rest? Often, the rituals that involve doing something in real life are, like, I would I would say, and I don't mean this in a bad way, I think they're inconsequential to the gameplay. Like, they don't actually, like, do anything mechanically, necessarily. Like, you in real life, giving someone a compliment affects the dynamic at the table, and, like, um does sort of like it mechanically impacts the gameplay in that it recharges your spell or technique but it doesn't actively sort of directly do anything the buy-in is uh like the impact is emotional and i think my biggest sort of observation about it what it does for our experience of gameplay is that it requires a lot of buy-in from the player in terms of both like connecting themselves to their character and sort of like giving those rituals meaning in the doing of them like you have to if you're a power gamer playing this game you're gonna make strategies about in fiction hacking off everybody's limbs to recharge your manic hands spell because you're not creating what i suspect mamedos wants you to create which is that like deep emotional sort of connection between the ritual and your character's access to power like chris was talking about earlier and it also speaks to i think I think that I, I think Percy and I even spoken this about this generally, but I know it's been spoken of it in general with this game. This game seems to really reward in-person play, mm. right? It, it, like sitting motionless for ten, 10 minutes or, or whatever minute. it was, just for one. one. Okay, but sitting motionless for one minute alone in my apartment while I'm on Zoom is a whole <laughs> lot less it doesn't feel the same as sitting around a dining room table with all of my friends who are continuing to have fun and do things with like all that stimulus and actually succeeding at that you know a minute feels a lot longer in that way uh and that's just that's a low impact version right like i think i think in general a lot of this stuff is i don't know it 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 sort it speaks to that emotionality you're talking about as well you know like the emotional connection comes from being observed and being perceived in the flesh uh which is pretty fun and and the community and ritual that that's that comes from that you know the sort of like inherently human ritual 
community com communing thing that happens when people gather mm -hmm. i think that there's something like part of what interested me about this game and about these rituals um when we were discussing season planning uh for the show is like okay i'm just this is weird and we haven't talked about dungeons and dragons in forever but i hate material components i think they are dumb i think they don't add anything to the game i don't care if you went out into the woods in character to pick a berry to make a good berry i don't give a shit i don't think it actually adds to the fiction i think it's just like kind of boring and like oh you got another thing for your checklist and like that's me and i get that um but I think that there is something really compelling about either making a choice in character to fulfill these rituals, like chopping off all someone's limbs. Like those are all strong character choices, whether you're trying to do that in an ethical or not ethical way in the game. Like, do you go and dig up a corpse and do that? I don't know, but your friends will probably think you're weird for doing that either way after you have a bunch of arms burst out of your face so you can do better in combat for a round or three but i think that there's like something really interesting to that and also like in in perhaps a counterpoint um to percy's earlier thoughts like uh trinket is very much like prestidigitation in D, &D. it's like you create a small you know sense feeling and like dex singing a song for all of us in character which didn't have to be in character but that's the choice the decks made singing a song for all of us in character to do prestidigitation like makes that moment mean so much more to me than like any time i had a character gloomily light a candle in a bar or whatever you know like there's something about the specificity and of the ritual of us doing that that i found really exciting and will stick with me mm. i think yeah, there's something oh go ahead uh, I was just about to defend material components. <laughs> so I, I was going to say sort of a defensive material component. Yeah, not a real one, the sort of one. What, not, what were you going to say? I wonder if it's the same. Well, I, I was going to say, I think one of the things that's so enthralling about these rituals is that they're so specific. Mm -hmm. And that is, I, I would say, actually kind of one of the issues with material components in current D&D. I don't really know 5th edition very well, but like, look... Even oh, back in the, like, 3.5 days, I don't think it was super, like, nobody was really tracking it. You had your little material component pouch, and the only thing that meant was that the GM could, like, take it away from you if you got captured, and then you just couldn't cast spells. That sucked. Um, yeah. I mean, maybe it was interesting gameplay, but for you individually, it sucked. But back in... But in that way, it, it functions the same way as, like, an arcane focus. Yes. But what mm -hmm. I was going to say is, back then... <laughs> the people who wrote D&D &D took the time to specify every material component and that was bizarre and kind of fun just from a narrative standpoint of like to to cast fireball yes you didn't have to ever go out and like find it but it told you in the book if you're casting fireball the material component is bat guano mm -hmm. yeah. and it definitely adds something to the character to be like I guess this man is walking around with a small pouch full of bat guano so that he can dip his hand in there whenever he needs to cast fireball. I would argue that that is exactly what it's useful for, especially in, in, in the follow-up question of what does it look like when you cast the spell, right? Then, then somebody can sort of say, I take bat guano between my fingers and I, you know, I spit in it and then I like flick my fingers and a fireball explodes, right? But I will argue for 
Because mm-hmm. I think that they're useless in that regard, right? It's just like fluff. It's a thing. It's not a big deal. And I agree. I'm not interested in role-playing somebody being like, I'm out of bat guano. Like, <laughs> right. You, right. You know, like, I don't really care. But I would. But but I will say, I'm out of a diamond worth a thousand gold pieces, so I can't cast Revivify in this moment. That mm-hmm. is a cost, an actual cost, much like we're talking about here, right? There is a... There is, just like you've got your, your like, equal, and it's much more elegantly done in this game, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like, what we're talking, like, all that they have in Dungeons & Dragons is the is loot, right? Like, that's sort of, like, things cost things because there is cost, and, like, that's that's all that they've got mechanically because it's this big bloated system. But, like, within our, I, it is the same philosophy towards it, right? As you go, okay, well, I sit for ten, I sit for a full minute, so I can move fast in the game, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think I think that there's something to be said there, but that's also like not an explicitly written rule. To be fair, what is an explicitly written rule in Dungeons and Dragons, Todd? You know, like they they literally go out and say, "Oh, here's a bunch. Here's a bunch of rules. Have fun." I mean, you know? I think it's I think I think it's about everybody at the table agreeing about the the extent to which they buy into yes. these things. Yeah. Like in my like two D home games ago i had a wizard who unbeknownst like we had just leveled up and we're role-playing that they're like coming down to breakfast or whatever and she's like she sits down at the table uh and orders like toast from the tavern person um and she looks me down the eyes and she says i is there a butter dish on the table and i'm like sure sure there's a butter dish on the table and she's like I open the butter dish I take out a handful of butter and I put it in my pocket and I was like sorry what (laughs) (laughs) she was like don't worry about it and I was like okay and then later she cast the grease spell for which the material component is butter and I was like that's amazing I love this so so awesome we had so much fun with that but it was because we were all sort of bought into like giving this meaning in the same way Mm -hmm. I think this game structures that buy-in a lot better like you i think i think it is much easier for everyone to be sort of bought into the storytelling necessity of these things um well and because mm -hmm. and because they're actions which i think is probably inherently more interesting what chris was talking about a little bit before of how in D D and its ilk kind of everything is commodified like the sort of inverse of what Percy was just the story Percy was just telling, which is actually like a fun character bit of, oh, I'm taking butter because I need it to cast my spells. Um, because that like turns it into an action in yeah. mm-hmm. first edition Pathfinder, a thing I never knew anybody to track, which by the rules you should, because it costs more than one gold piece, to cast the spell create pit. I just looked this up <laughs> to confirm my memory. Which is a very useful spell. Just makes a big hole. Useful in combat. Open it below sure. people. Shove people into it. Whatever. Me at the punk show, I cast Create Pit. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the material components is stand and put your arms out and start spinning? Yeah. Create no, the, Pit. No, the actual material component is a miniature shovel. Here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. Costing 10 gold pieces. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Nice Which is not shovel. an interest. Like, unlike the butter, this is like, okay, this is purely a tax on casting the spell because there's no world in which you're going to, like, stumble across a pile of 10 gold piece miniature shovels. Like, this is literally just saying you have to spend 10 gold pieces to cast the spell. And, the, and is it consumed? And is it consumed by yes. the spell? Yes. Well, that. but listen, you know what? I will say, man, create pit 
What level spell is that? Sounds low. It seems like a good spell. Like, if I'm trying to, like... That's very easy to spam, right? Like, oh, oh yeah. boy. Oh, I... boy. Every six <laughs> seconds, I can create a pit underneath all of my enemies. I seem to have hacked through... I, I seem to not need to do combat anymore. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's where the power gamer... It's, it's almost like checks and balances against power gaming, right? In some ways. Yeah. Whereas and I get I think... really invested in the implications of a magic system that is dairy-based. <laughs> <laughs> like, what does it mean to be in a world where you use, where you use dairy products to cast magic? That's amazing. Well, I just love it. Yeah, and inversely, there's this stupid thing of, to answer Chris's question, it's a second-level spell, which means there's lots of spellcasters who can cast it, which presumably means there is a small industry in this world <laughs> devoted to crafting Yo, you got what tiny I need? shovels. You got what I need? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They open their trench coat, and it's full of tiny little shovels. I got a spade. I got a spade. I need a shovel, Tony. I need a shovel. What is this? Anyway, that was a that was a long tangent. We should probably return. No, to No, I think it was very thinking. relevant. Actually, it was about. No, it was about the the concept. Hey, no it's tangents. do it's doing it's doing and not having. Yes, um, doing yes. and not having is a good way to put it. Yeah, doing and not having, and also and also making meaning right like it has to mean something you've got to go out of your way to do the thing Mm -hmm. right like percy to your earlier anecdote about your you know butter thief um (laughs) i think the material cost of casting grease being acquire butter or something like that is much more interesting to me than like you need a tablespoon of butter in order to cast this spell yeah uh or like I don't know pickled squid tentacles like that's now i have to have a shop where the <laughs> warlock can go and get a pickled squid tentacle every time they want to cast a spell no to, i don't want you that you get to you get to have a shop <laughs> like that okay that's a privilege but i think like you have to acquire a squid tentacle in order to cast this again okay i guess we're this is a different story when we're playing near the ocean versus when we're playing in the mountains yeah and like i think that would make things different in the the D magic system that really excites me about arc doom's magic system yes, is that absolutely. like you are invited to do these things if you want to do these spells again and like yeah the opportunity might not present itself immediately to consume a door i also in the vein of doing versus having i'm thinking a lot about embodiment um I'm thinking about the way that these rituals create a sort of like synchronicity or a kind of like tangible connection between the player and their character. Um, And it comes to mind largely because I've been playing a game of public access, which is the same basic mystery system as Brindlewood Bay. And that game in a very sort of different way has a sort of TV writer approach to you, the player in relationship to your character. Like obviously you're role-playing in character frequently, but there is a sort of like, there's lots of moments in the story where you as a player are sort of looking from above onto what's happening and making decisions based on like what is most interesting where is the story going to go like it's it's um i think you're encouraged to step out of your character whereas this game is sort of inviting you to lean into your character or to sort of understand yourself as like so deeply connected to that character that your real life actions have an impact mechanically in the fiction which I think are complete opposites of each other, which is not to say that one is right and one is wrong necessarily, but I'm like 
interested in those two very different approaches that create very different experiences but both of which i would argue are like very engine like very geared towards incentivizing the creation of story i I was just gonna say in some ways it feels to me almost like it's incentivizing the creation of story in different um uh uh mindsets or formats almost of like the it's it's the difference between oh god i don't remember who who said this originally somebody whose name i can't remember um had this theory about the different types of engagement that tabletop games or games in general it's gary allen fine is it gary allen fine thank you um i'm just believing percy white says that (laughs) i'm confident percy's right percy does most of these things um uh but you know one of those engagements is is like acting or character and another is story so in some ways it feels like this is like the 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 notion of embodiment drawing you closer to the character is like a way into story through character whereas the kind of tv writer approach is uh story from the i don't know what to say like storyteller standpoint i'm so sorry it's actually ron edwards uh and and vincent baker on the forge forums but no one but me cares about that carry on no, I care about it too. Every everything, every word in tabletop games started with Ron Edwards and Vincent Baker on the Forge forums. I'm kidding, but I'm not kidding. I'm thinking about vulnerability mm. as we're talking about these game styles. Yeah, I'm thinking about the notion, right? Like, sorry, I'm just I'm just sitting here going like, all right, what is, you know we're leaning into these characters and there's a blurring of yourself versus the character, right? There is a blurring of the boundary between this imagined persona and you as a human among your mm-hmm. friends, right? And and the notion of what is it what are we what are we experiencing by leaning in, right? What is it asking us to do um, within this magic circle? Which was a little bit of a segue for what we're going to talk about. But, like, what are we asking of ourselves by playing this game? And, like, what is this game asking us to do? And how much of that has to do with being vulnerable with the people that are around us? Well, I will say... but Versus the alternative way of playing this game, which is how do I game it? Right? that top-down thing, which is how do, how do I maintain distance from vulnerability, right? And what do I, Im- and, and, and as much as it's like, yeah, okay, that's not, that's not an actual separation of emotion because we're humans and we can't do that, right? Like, what is the emotional benefit to a person, to a play, to playing that way, right? And is that, and I would, I would argue that this game really lends itself away from that play style right Mm -hmm. like it is not encouraging people to play that way it wants you to be emotionally vulnerable in this and if you don't it just is not going to give you as many opportunities to feel superior to that emotion to the to the vulnerability because that's the only thing that i i can think of why somebody would want to do that like what emotional benefit they would get from it and i just i I don't i'm not a psychiatrist do you know what i mean but i I don't know what are your thoughts on this I'm, i'm sort of musing i don't have a point 
yeah. so much as a this is what I thought. Well, I, I think I think the one thing I'd offer, um, and I do agree, this is this does raise the question. That's what we're going to talk about next, which is like, how does this or does this blur the notion of the magic circle, which we've talked about before? And and I will say, I think one thing that uh, I, I don't think that removed perspective is always necessarily about uh, like feeling. I, I don't remember what the phrase used was of. But like feeling superior. Well, yeah, and I and I was and again, uh, yeah, hyper. Yeah, 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 musing, musing. Yeah, but I was gonna say because there is also a like, um, you know, in some ways, I think that can also be a safety approach if you do want yes. to, you know, and and it's a different. You know, a lot of the games we play come from the, like, ultimately, I think, uh, come from the sort of Baker paradigm of play to find out what happens, um, which is fair enough in, in broad terms, but there's a different vulnerability or there's a required vulnerability when it is like, truly we do not know what might happen and we're going to get very invested in these characters that you sometimes want a little more distance from if you're playing, for example, Bluebeard's Bride, which I would say oh, yeah. does take steps to like distance you a little bit in that you know you're playing your character is kind of abstracted. You're playing fragments of a single person's psyche rather than like a person. And you all know how this is going to end. Mm -hmm, and I think yeah. that kind of like, that's sort of what I mean by like storyteller versus character is like, if I'm playing a game where I don't know what's going to happen and I very closely identify with my character, I'm going to do what I, in some cases I may actually try to game the system more because I like want them to survive. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I've gone into the story being like, I think the most interesting story here might be my character like dying in a heroic sacrifice or whatever. Um, it opens up different uh, spaces for it opens up different storytelling spaces in me as a like emotional player. Yeah. Um, and you can never be like fully distanced, obviously, but it mm -hmm. does have uses. Can I trouble uh, some of your thoughts about Brindlewood Bay? Not Brindlewood Bay. Bluebeard's Bread. The BBs. Yeah, yeah. Um, so something that I have been thinking about during this conversation with regards to Bluebeard's Bride is sort of the co-locating of the player and the character. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking specifically about like the shiver with fear mechanic that right, like yeah. when you, the player have an actual physical reaction to what's happening in the game, you lose control. Um, mm -hmm. Like that, that there's a mechanical thing that happens to that. And I think what's interesting about arc, a doom RPG is that Momato's by both using real time to heighten stakes, to heighten, uh, choices that you're making to make things more tense um, and to say like you actually have to do these things I think there's a co-locating there that's really exciting um, that like either gets you more invested emotionally but also uh, allows you to like go through what your player what your character is going through a little more that I think is interesting I don't know that I have a, a solid finished thesis on that but there's something mm -hmm. about like the co-locating of player experience and character experience that i find really exciting about these rituals yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. because i think like from my experience playing at least public access which admittedly different from brindlewood day but similar enough like i get really emotionally invested in that and i'm 
I think willing to make like willing to accept suboptimal outcomes because they are more interesting because like I, I, there's that separation there. And when I get emotionally invested in that game, it is very often the same experience of when I'm watching like a scary TV show and I want to know what happens to the characters. But it's not the same as like me as Luke Parrish being like, oh, my God, my friend's mom got possessed because I messed up our seance. Right. Like it's I'm sitting outside of it and I am invested in it, but it's a different kind of investment than the sort of co-location that Todd is talking about that is facilitated by doing these rituals like I I don't know I'm a little bit biased because I've never been like a role player who's like I'm in character and I'm like I have my super objective and my tap my tactics and I this is what my character would do like I'm I just can't do that but I feel like having these sort of real life touchstones gives me an access point to my character and makes me sort of willing to I don't know. I'm rambling. But the other thought that I've had that I think will help me square the circle is that I've been thinking about um, the example that Todd brought, the burn the past spell and its ritual, Mm -hmm. which I think is a really great example of how, like, if you try to game the rituals by just, like, blowing through them in order to regain your spells and techniques, like, the game will just be incredibly unsatisfying, I think. Like, I think the game just, like, does not reward that behavior at all. Like, if you're like, oh, whatever, I burn all my letters from my family, um, like, sure, sure, you do that, and you get your spells back. (laughs) And I think the game will feel... will not feel fun. It will not reward. Yeah, it, like, it, it doesn't, it won't feel fun to play. And also, not for nothing, you got to find a whole group of people who are going to agree to do it the same way. Yeah, like... Mm-hmm. That's the hard thing. Yeah, and, like, if you all are doing it the same way, like, you're going to have, like, you're not going to enjoy playing the game. So I'm sort of, like... Yeah. I, I think, think that's... I think just, just to, just to like, wrap the... Uh, uh, like, you kind of have... I think, I think that ultimately what we're saying is this game, and this is sort of, like, speaking to what I was saying clumsily with superiority, this game does not reward the cynic Mm. it doesn't reward the cynic in the same way that it does the sort of like person who is open to experience and i think that is a that is a tremendous achievement and design right Mm -hmm. that like it it really it really makes the cynic separates the cynic from the group instantly right and it makes it it will make if, if you have one cynic in a group of people doing this game, then they are going to feel like an outsider. By and everybody else will perhaps f- view them as the person who is kind of yucking their yum, <laughs> right? So, mm-hmm. and I think that's that's a really really interesting way of again encouraging community and encouraging sort of like people to be with each other. Which is very philosophically satisfying considering the themes of this game of being the end of the world and how do we save ourselves but by being with each other. And I think yeah. that's an awfully nice thing. Well, and I will say I was looking through the book earlier and I do think, I didn't, I didn't check systematically, but I would say uh, every, every ritual that is specifically uh, for the player rather than the characters... I, th- I think pretty much everyone I clocked 
is something that feels kind either pro-social or at least like a kind of fun table party game you know even the like sitting still mm. for a minute is like a fun not too heavy challenge but like chris was saying earlier like a fun thing to do while you're playing D&D or whatever especially around an actual table i imagine it has got to be kind of fun and silly to have one person you know the game going and one person just sitting there as still as possible for a minute like that's a fun bit and i mean inspiration which we do see in the in in the actual play is just a lovely one where you have to give somebody else like kind words at the table out of character or in private not necessarily at the table but one of your fellow players um and so yeah i, th I think momentos has given a lot of thought to how these rituals can build good like table camaraderie mm -hmm. and even like uh i'm forgetting i think it's called unmask uh is one of romana's techniques um, that like lets you know the true desires of one person and mm -hmm. their true name and stuff like that. And the ritual for that was like write down your heart's desire on a piece of paper and then crumple it up. And like, boy, howdy, I want to know what Ro wrote on that piece of paper. And also that's not part of it. Like part of it is that Ro writes this down and like puts themselves in a vulnerable situation and also gets to keep that secret. Yeah. yeah. Um, which I love. One of the things that I, I was doing some research in uh, preparing for this episode that I just wanted to like speak into this space, um, Catherine Himes was presenting at the uh, at a board game design summit, um, talking about artifacts of play, and she was talking about you know different TTRPGs, but also just board games that involve. Mark, making marks or artifacts or things, whether that's a map in the quiet year or your risk legacy map and like board game that changes as you play the game um, in in ways that are irreversible. Uh, she's kind of talking about like different ways uh, we make artifacts in games. And one of her highlights was that she felt artifacts of play are made within the magic circle and emphasize the meaning made there. That, like, in doing these rituals, in doing these acts, in creating something, we kind of reinforce um, the feelings that we're having in that moment of the game. And that could be your session notes um, that you jot down during D&D &D, or a map that you like drew as your DM was describing a place like all of those things inform and are relics and artifacts of your gameplay experience and exist outside of the game after the game is over and I think that there's just something interesting about how these rituals work and how they emphasize um, feelings of camaraderie but also uh, just like specific moments from from your gameplay. This is also a thing that Shingen Core and Jian Shim um, touch on when they talk about keepsake games and connected path games, which they also position really explicitly as like um, a rejection of disposability culture and a sort of rejection mm -hmm. of like the ephemerality of gameplay, which I think is really interesting as like a person who does theater. Um, mm -hmm. And it, 
yeah, I, I think there is something really, really exciting about this idea of like, yeah, how do, how do we take this thing and make it real and how do we bring it into the, into the real world? Even if the thing that, even if the ritual that we're doing is ephemeral, you know, I mean, I just think about people who collect playbills. You know what I mean? Like, this is... That's... I, I, which maybe it's a big jump, judging from the blank looks on everybody's face, but, but also just, like, I think that in a lot of ways, there's lots of instances of this when it comes to eph- ephemeral things such as this, right? Like, how do we make magic mean something, right? The magic of sort of like alchemy of creation that we do you know we we all especially as now we're all dramaturgs right we're all developers of new of new things in a lot of cases and it's like you know we there's experimentation that goes on with those things but in a lot of ways i don't think i think i think it's it disingenuous to call a lot of what we do as game people but also as theater people and as, as creators of these existential not existential, of these um sort of like metaphysical realities is like as scientific much closer to alchemical in the sense that it doesn't really exist (laughs) what we're making you can't actually turn iron into gold but but you can and like in a lot of and so how do we get the gold at the end of the at the end of the day it's by it's by having a binder full of playbills from every Broadway show that I've ever been to not me but like you know the people who we've all like especially I grew up near New York like Caitlin Markey if you're listening I know you do it's very amazing <laughs> very impressive like she loves it and, she, and that's what she does and like I don't know they used to do that they used to have like playbills used to have ads for like playbill keepsake binders and things in the back of the oh I'm like, sure they still do well, but it, not not in the back of the playbill anymore. But it was sure. there for a long time. Now we have the internet, really? right? But... I was going to say, I would have thought that was the main purpose of a playbill these days. I mean, also contractual stuff about crediting the artists and stuff. But like, <laughs> well, in a lot of ways, yeah, yeah, it it, it is. Um, but I also like. I think that's just a very interesting thing. You know, like that's a good old big old crossover. Is it, it? Do you have to do it in order to experience it? I don't know. I'm getting really yeah now. Well, well, that's that, but that is something I was thinking about is the because I in in some ways the interesting thing about the the keepsake games being a, a counter to disposability culture is the 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 question of is there a like an aspect of like consumer culture in that um, mm-hmm. of like you know and and this is I think more. Um, and I and I, mm. I think my answer for keepsake games, which I don't know super well, but for keepsake games specifically, I think my answer is no. But I'm thinking about because this is kind of more my world, like sleep no more, and all sure. the like merch, and also just physical crap you can get from it. The um, mask, a lot. The mask, yeah, which everybody gets to go home with. Uh, and, and I'm, but I think one of the big differences there. And this is not to put any that this is not to put any judgment on either thing, but I do think there's a difference between keepsake games, which are often played like at home, either alone or in a very small group, and involve like making the thing that is then a record of the ephemeral thing, versus like going to sleep no more and like stealing their 
stealing a letter from the desk, uh, which lots of people do. Uh, but but you, yeah. but uh, j- j- just to say that like Still there's a the overhead. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah. Sorry. But that, no. But I think it's interesting too. Like, like you got the masks or ever when that first when Sleep No More first first happened, it was like you'd go into somebody's apartment and you'd see a mask and you'd be like, oh, you went. You know, and like you'd keep that mask hoping somebody would see it because you'd be like, it's, it felt like a club, you know, and like that's that is literally a keepsake, right? And, it's, and then it becomes sort of commodified. I think it all starts in one place, right? And then it can sort of, mm. you know, I try to keep, I try to make, I give out, I used to, my previous theater company, Team Awesome Robot, I would give out tiny little robots. Look, Percy's, Percy's got one. showing one off right now very, for the very, viewers at home. It, it's the sort of robot that you would get out of a quarter, out of a out of a just quarter uh, that cost a quarter at the grocery store, out of a little turn turn thing, right? And just, mm-hmm. They're very cheap. You buy them in bulk. Uh, the theater company is no longer called Team Awesome Robot. We don't do that anymore. But it is sort of like the purpose is the same. You know what I mean? Yeah. Have this, right? Like mm-hmm. this happened. Proof. Proof Ooh. that this happened. But and to, that's maybe the thing for this game, for these games. Sorry. To circle us back to the thing that we concluded earlier about material components, the difference is that it's not about the having; it's about playing the game. It's about the doing of playing mm. the game, yes. at which you arrive at having the thing. Yeah, it's the mm-hmm. journey. <laughs> it's the friends we made along the way. <laughs> Speaking of the friends we made along the way, hey everybody! Thank you all so much for listening to this. To this incredible conversation it was really very fun uh we hope that you will join us for the thrilling conclusion of arc do a doom rpg will gorm get a boyfriend will the doom be averted or will they fall at the hands of york yoke edije find out next week Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percival Hornack, and Nicholas Orvis, and this episode was mixed and edited by Percival Hornack. Season 3 features contributions from Christopher Dierksen, Ben Ferber, Corey Flores, Tess Huth, Romana Isabella, Leo Mock, John John Johnson, Dex Fawn, and Anthony Sertaldean. If you'd like to help us continue exploring the intersection of theater and tabletop role-playing games, consider leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice or supporting us, and getting access to our patron-only bonus content at patreon.com slash dungeonsandramanerds. You can find our social media and website links, including our cast bios, at the link tree in our show notes. And be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Ba da ba da ba da 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 da